Sama Sambudasa Namoetasa Bagawatu Arahatu Sama Sambudasa Namoetasa Bagawatu Arahatu Sama Sambudasa Budangdamang Sangang Namasam so for, uh, for those for whom this is a, a new chanting, doing a chant before the Dhamma talk, it's, um, it's customary for the monastics in the forest tradition just to start with this chant. And what this is is a signal to both yourselves and myself that this is not just a, a kind of an ordinary time for hanging out chit-chat. So when you hear that chant, what you're supposed to do is remember, oh, you know, this is a time for Dhamma. And so you can uh, let your attention rest with your own internal sense of what you're hearing and let your internal body sense be something that helps you get a sense of whether what you're hearing is resonating with you in your deepest understanding. You know, obviously, if I say anything that doesn't resonate, just let it go. But also the invitation that I, uh, I like to make sure is very clear that you know, even if there's a large group of people like this, if I speak in a way that goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth actually is, then don't just let it go. Somehow find a way of getting in touch with me and, 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 and letting me know what happened. Because this is a very special situation, speaking and listening to the Dhamma. And it's really important in order to protect it that there is a mutual agreement of respect, that that's actually what we're here doing. And I'll do my bit. You know, hopefully I won't go too off, far off the rails. But in order for me to do my bit, I need to ask you to do your bit, which is that if I do go off the rails, you just kindly and gently, probably not while I'm talking, but at another time, just let me know, all right? And then that way we support a relationship of respect towards mutual understanding and awakening. And that's what a Dhamma talk is meant to be. So the classical encouragement is to sit upright and to let 90% of your attention rest inwardly. And the reason for that is, is that when your body hears something that is true, you have your whole, your chest relax, your shoulders relax, your belly opens, your breath quietens and softens and gets stiller. And there's a whole somatic response to yes and to truth. It's like it's not an intellectual or conceptual happening. You will know. Yeah. So we can listen for that. Um, the topic tonight I wanted to talk about was the peace of letting go. And it's not P-I-E-C, the small bit. It's the big bit. <laughs> it's, the, it's the sense of ease and well-being that comes from letting go. And one of the things, um, when I first went to the Thai Forest Monastery in Thailand, the, the forest monastery that Ajahn Chah established for Westerners, they had sayings that were written in English and in Thai that were, were hung from trees and underneath orchids and in, in, in the forest along the, the monastery pathways or in areas where you could sit or where at the end of a walking meditation path. And these were, m most of these were quotes from Ajahn Chah himself. And one of the quotes that I really loved was, if you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And so I thought I'd use that saying of Ajahn Chah as a context for reflection for this evening. We can consider 
What does it mean to let go? So, you know, letting go is pretty contemporary language, and we think letting go means, well, you just drop everything. But well, the irony is, is that when we start looking at this, we have some interesting um, paradoxes in it. So the first bit of letting go a little, what is letting go a little? You know, well, when I can reflect on my own life and I see, well, letting go a little, it's, it really has to do with taking up the precepts and using them as a container for mirroring behavior which is not skillful. So the kind of, of a willingness to stay within certain kinds of boundaries of integrity in order to support a, a lack of remorse from falling into behavior, which uh, is, is something that we regret later. So at, at the first level, you know, what's really helpful in letting go is picking up. <laughs> picking up precepts, picking up standards, picking up a sense of a container, having a sense of what a life of integrity looks like and being willing to live within that. And we know, or I, mean, I know, that if I, if I make a mistake and, and, and speak in a way that I regret or... Uh, you know, any of the other ways that a person can break precepts. The feeling is, ugh, you know, it's like, oh, there's a kind of cringing that can happen about that. And so then one of the things that's really helpful in learning how to let go a little is also to learn how to differentiate between the kind of remorse, which is the cringing and contracting around something which is unskillful, and this toxic kind of collapsing into I'm a terrible person, I always have been and I always will be kind of trip, which gets then taped, looped around and around and around. So a little bit of letting go allows for a little bit of peace. And we can see that, you know, when the kind of choices that we make in our life in terms of, the, you know, how much we have, how much we need, what we use, the kind of resources that we use, the kind of ways that we take care of recycling or how much, what kind of things that we buy in terms of what kind of trash is left. You know, these, these are little choices that we make, and the result of that is a, is a sense of, you know, I've contributed my bit, you know, I've done my bit. There's a sense of, you know, I'm not taking too much here, and it's not extra. And so there's a sense of, of a, a little bit of peace that can come from doing <coughs> one's bit. You know, and in this letting go a little, you know, it's, it's useful to, to look at the way that we have made our choices and the kinds of things that we say that we need. So, you know, I've lived in England the better part of the last 20 years, and it's really staggering to me the standards that are in this country. You know, it's just high standards about everything, and that's just considered normal. And yet, I've never lived anywhere else, you know, I mean, I've lived lots of other places where that's actually not normal. It's actually extraordinary. So what we consider to be just baseline normal, you know, for most everybody else on the planet is actually quite high. So then if we're interested to look at that, of like, well, how, much, how many times do we need to get new clothes? And how many times do we need to go out? Or how many times do, how many pairs of shoes do we need? Or how many times do we need to redecorate the house? Or... You know, how often do we need to get a new car, you know? These are choices which on some level are, are small, and yet they have an effect on our own sense of inner well-being, our own sense of peace, and they contribute to a 
increased sense of well-being, when we're living with less and feeling more content with little, you know? And so, you know, again, one of the pressures that I hear again and again and again, and particularly in our economy now, is it's actually hard to, to you know, to keep a roof over the head and food on the table and the bills paid and all the rest of that. And so, you know, one of the things that's not a, an insignificant or an inappropriate question or inquiry is, is there a way of, of, of lowering the need level, the overhead, so that there's less pressure, less stress? So we can, we can make inquiries in this way, and, and the result of that can be a sense of, of a little bit more peace. Letting go a lot, what does that look like? Well, I don't know about you, but you know, for me, it's not that hard if somebody gave me a piece of paper for me to write down on a piece of paper all the things that I think are correct and all the things that I think are incorrect and to have those things kind of sorted out in my head, you know? So I can work out what is right relationship with myself and right relationship with my family and right relationship with, you know, people that I relate to or people that I don't know. You know, and, and on a piece of paper, it's, it's pretty straightforward. But the truth is, is, is that it doesn't work out quite like that. And when we get into situations where we get really agitated, we feel really hurt, or we feel betrayed, or we feel really angry, or we feel our authority is being um, disregarded, you know, how easy is it to do the right thing in that situation? So a whole huge part of practice is learning how to work with emotions. And again, the irony is in order to let go, we need to pick up what is actually happening to us. Be interested in the emotional territory we're experiencing in order to get a sense of what is actually causing these strong reactions and how is it that we're able to relate to them in a way where we're not just kind of the byproduct of some kind of explosion or, or implosion or fusion experience, but there's choice and deliberation and discernment and kindness and compassion, which is part of the flow. So, you know, with strong stuff that comes, usually it takes over. And our speech just follows suit. And then we feel, oh dear, you know, what did I do? And so learning how to work with the whole world of emotions and our reactions and our reactivity and what we feel really passionate about and find a way to bring some sense of spaciousness in that takes a certain amount of courage and skill and patience and persistence. And yet when we let go of our habitual responses to blowing up when we feel angry, collapsing when we feel uh, somehow inadequate, and hold a mind of steadiness in the presence of strong emotional reactions, what's the result? I mean, I know for me, quite a lot of peace. Because the things can come up, and they do, but I'm no longer a slave to them. So my life can unfold according to the values that I have. You know, it's not as if I'm kind of making a marshmallow schmear to go over everything. You know, it's actually I'm feeling things genuinely. But the compassion and the insight that I have is able to stay present even when it's hot. 
my experience of that is, is, is there's quite a lot of peace that comes with that. There's quite a deep sense of settling in, a quite a deep sense of feeling comfortable with who I am as a person and kind of a sense of safety that you know, I don't feel like the boogeyman's going to jump out of the closet and grab me because the boogeyman's inside here. <laughs> and when I know that and how that operates and how to work with it, and I have some confidence, you know, when this thing goes blah, but I can say, welcome, friend, I know you, you know, and not freak, then there's a sense of, well, you know, I can walk around with some sense of fearlessness. You know, I'm not just freaked that any moment there's going to be some kind of massive reactivity internally that I just can't cope with. Obviously, this is not a small task. You know, and for many people who come to the spiritual life, we think, well, you know, I'll come and I'll sit and I'll be quiet and, and then everything will be good. <laughs> or one comes on a retreat or one comes to the monastery or comes and takes precepts and you think, well, that's, that'll solve everything. I'll take precepts. That'll solve everything, you know. Well, I have news for you. It doesn't solve everything. Uh, it gives a container to be able to focus one's attention on the things that actually need solving, which are here. Yeah. So we have a lot of investment in looking out there, that it's him, it's her, it's the weather, it's the government, it's the president, it's the insurance, it's the health care, it's the economy, it's the debt, it's, the, it's out there. And yet, when we begin to take up meditation as a practice and as a process of inquiry, we have got to learn how to turn it back here. Where is this landing in me? What is actually am I feeling? How am I relating to those feelings? So letting go a lot has to do with a new way of relating to our whole emotional interior. And rather, liking, rather than liking what we like and disliking what we dislike and going round and round with the roundy rounds, there's a way of bringing inquiry and investigation to this whole process so that there's a sense of inner peace and well-being, even though this territory is still something that is arising. Not easy but very worthwhile. There's a whole huge amount of material in meditation practice in the suttas and in the teachings that talk about bringing balance to the conditions that we experience. And certainly keeping the precepts helps support that. You know, living with kindness and generosity supports that. Having spiritual centers like this and being able to come and listen to the teachings support that. But the problem is, is, is that as long as we are committed to being good meditators, we are eventually going to find ourselves in a real pickle. Because no matter how adept we are at being able to settle our minds and allow our attention to rest with the breath and know how to relax the body and be with the conditions that arise and help bring them into balance, there's going to be times when we can't do that. And certainly anybody who's experienced a kind of catastrophic loss, who's experienced catastrophic illness, you know, how many people in the tsunami was an in-control uh, process? 
You know, each one of us is going to go through the gateway of death, some sooner than others. And so there are things that happen in life that are out of control. And that's not having gone wrong. That's just the way it is. That's normal. That's actually part of life. But when our meditation practice is organized around keeping things in balance, and underneath keeping things in balance is this implicit sense of keeping things in control, then sooner or later we feel that we, either we are a failure or the meditation is a failure. But the meditation is only a failure because we've only opened up to half of it. Bringing things into balance is half of the meditation practice. So letting go completely is no longer having an opinion about how anything is supposed to be. It's not positing me against you. It's not taking up the world in terms of looking at it as a dualistic relationship. It's good, it's bad, it's right and it's wrong. I like it, I don't like it. It's being willing to relinquish all of that. Even our opinions about our practice. So it doesn't mean that we turn into a potato or a cucumber. It doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity for clarity and discernment. But it just means that that isn't the force that's driving who we are and how we're relating to things. Letting go completely is a willingness to not engage in the, in the capacity of the mind to separate, to judge, to evaluate, even though those qualities of mind still function. It's not allowing them to take center stage. And the only way they cannot take center stage, or the only way that there's space for which they have second stage or second fiddle, is that there's something else that our attention is resting in. So what else would it be resting in if it's not resting in liking and disliking and good and bad and judgment and evaluation and I'm here and you're there? What else is there? I mean, that's a really important question to ask yourself, what else is there other than this world that is constantly filled up with all of these choices and all of our judgments and opinions and evaluations about how we like it or don't like it to be? <coughs> this whole question about letting go completely has to do with shifting our orientation from identifying with the things that we experience to allowing attention to rest in awareness itself. As long as I'm identified with the things that I experience, it's inevitable that I'm going to want to have the nice fuzzy ones come and stay and have the horrible prickly ones go. And it's inevitable that my life is going to be around organizing, getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't want because I am what it is that I'm experiencing. I'm a sad person, I'm a mad person, I'm a tired person, I'm a sick person, I'm a healthy person, I'm a happy person, I'm an unhappy person, I'm a depressed person. I am what it is that I'm experiencing. 
And I have all kinds of opinions about what it is that I experience based on my identification of who I take myself to be. And so if what I'm experiencing is in conflict with what I take myself to be, then I try and get rid of it. If what I'm experiencing is congruent with what I take myself to be, then I try and hold on to it. And then we cause a war between the things that we want to stay and the things that we want to go and how we fight to get the ones to stay, stay longer, and the ones to go to go quicker. <laughs> and we think that's peaceful. Well, that's not peaceful. <laughs> war is not peaceful. So in addition to learning how to develop skill in bringing balance to the conditions that we experience, which is fundamental, it's absolutely essential, one also needs to learn how to witness what is arising without identifying with it. Allowing attention to rest in awareness itself rather than identifying with the object of what is known. In order to do that, we do not locate ourselves in what it is that we're experiencing. Because we don't locate ourselves in anything, it requires letting go completely. Can you see that? Do you follow? Yeah? When you let go completely, what is the result? There doesn't need to be circumstances that are meeting my needs and opinions and judgments and evaluations about how it's supposed to be and what I think. That is not what is required. There isn't a requirement. Life is allowed to be as it is. One is present and knowing and discerning. But the conditions don't have to change in order for the peace to be there. Now check it out. Is that a good thing or not? <laughs> Is that worth making an effort for or not? How would it be if you were able to be in relationship just with your body, your heart, and your mind, and not expect, demand, have opinion about how it was supposed to be? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't actually apply ourselves and make effort. It's not saying that. But our identity of who we are is not locked up in what it is that we are experiencing. <coughs> when we are able to do this, and then when we are able to bring this kind of discernment or clarity into our ability to, to make actions, then our life is lived with the fluidity and flow of understanding peace and engaging in skillful action. We know both. The more we are able to let go completely, the more we understand what it is to live without fear. Because as long as we're holding on to anything, there's fear. There has got to be fear. Living without fear is a really wonderful thing. In my own life, in my own experience, you know, I thought I was a very courageous person. And what I realized was is that oftentimes I was doing very courageous things motivated by fear. <laughs> and it took an enormous 
immense amount of ease and well-being and a sense of comfort and welcome for me to have the real courage to be able to look at the fear that I was living with. And then as I was able to look at it and open it up and see where it was residing, then I was able to allow attention to rest in something other than that which was identified or driven by fear. And the more that I've been able to do that, the more ease and well-being that I've experienced in my life. So you let go a little, you have a little bit of peace. You let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And you let go completely, utterly, without any attachment to anything. And there is complete peace. So each person needs to decide whether these are important things to uh, explore or make an effort or to investigate. And each of us needs to look and see the peace that is actually already there. Because we're really good at seeing the things that are absent, you know, the places that still need work. It's hard for us to see what's present. It's hard for us to see the non-suffering. It's hard for us to see our own skillfulness. So when we look at the precepts, for example, you know, like how many people in this room murdered somebody today? <laughs> All right, but how many of you reflected that you haven't murdered somebody today? <laughs> you know, so that becomes a kind of normal standard, not killing, becomes standard. And then we reflect, reflect that actually if we look at it in terms of the world population, it's not standard. There are plenty of people in the world who cannot say that. And so we miss what we are doing because it becomes normal. And we forget to take the nourishment of actually, this is actually something to reflect on. That I am doing this. I am keeping these precepts in this way. And as we reflect on that, it gives the support and the confidence that our practice is worthwhile. It gives us connection to our own sense of self-respect and goodness. And that gives us fortitude to begin to open up some of these other areas that need or can use some support, investigation. So I think I'd like to close the actual formal talk now, leave this for some uh, contemplation, open up the topic for questions and uh, see how we go. How's that sound? Sounds okay? Okay. There's a question in the back there. Where? Straight back. So you talked about um, clarity and discernment, and I'm questioning, so I can have clarity and discernment about a situation and then practice non-attachment to the outcome. Have I got that right? That's or right. Or anywhere close? That's right, yeah. So one of the things that's another irony in this whole topic is, is, is that commitment really helps support letting go. Mm -hmm. 
because as long as we are um, invested in an outcome, then our commitment to the process is going to be uh, tenuous. When we're committed to staying with something no matter what happens, then that supports letting go of the outcome and it supports bringing forward the skills and the discernment needed in the situation. So again, there's another interesting uh, paradox that in order to let go, one actually needs to be fully present and fully committed to the process. Don't check out. Don't check out. Checking out doesn't help. It doesn't help support the inquiry and it doesn't help support the letting go. But sometimes what happens is, is that checking out is what we do because it's like we need a holiday. It's like we've had enough and we actually need to have a break. And we don't know how to give ourselves holiday by staying, staying present. And so checking out is, is a kind of um, poor man's holiday. <laughs> There's a question back there. So for clarity, so so letting go is more about you can let go by being more aware. So the more you become aware of yourself, the easier it is to let go. Uh, certainly awareness, being aware of yourself does help letting go enormously. But sometimes um, being aware means also being willing to pick certain things up. So it isn't only just bare awareness. It's also supported with living with integrity and cultivating generosity and cultivating wise friends and creating situations that support mirroring your own goodness. So for example, one of the real blessings of a, of a healthy spiritual community is, is that not only that people come and sit silently together, but people know each other well enough to mirror their own goodness. Because oftentimes we don't see that ourselves. And somebody who knows you well can help show that to you. And then when we see those good qualities about ourselves and see our resources mirrored to us, that often helps support bringing more awareness to a situation, and that awareness then supports letting go. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. Question up front? Um, I have a question about the process of letting go and non-attachment and political activism. So if you are, you know, how do you work on a campaign without being attached to the outcome of that campaign? Or attached to, you know, Obama winning or healthcare. If you're working on healthcare and you're calling people and talking to them about healthcare, how do you not uh, be attached to wanting that campaign to come out what feels to what feels with integrity and 
kind, you know, it's like it's coming from a good place of principles and compassion, but and you're working for it. But how do you not, you know, if somebody just says, well, you know, I don't think, um, well, we, we lose and say, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm not attached to that. You know, how, how do you do that? <laughs> not, not attachment is not a kind of uh, wishy-washy thing. It's actually ferocious. And so if you look at people who are fearless, they are ferocious, or at least they have the capacity for being ferocious. But the ferociousness is not coming from anger. Well, I'm not suggesting that, it, that yeah. it is. It's not coming from anger, and it's not coming from a, a, a desire that's a clinging desire. It's coming from a clarity of what supports the best interests, okay? But if one is genuinely interested in supporting the best interests, one of the ways to do that is to include um, both sides of the, of the conversation in a way where everybody's points can get heard. And if one thinks that only one side of the argument's arguments have any validity, then it doesn't support a discussion in a way that actually supports resolution. No, I, I completely agree with that. But just if you are in a situation and you are working towards a campaign and you're talking to people and you're open and you're listening to all sides and 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 you are approaching it with integrity and an open heart and all um, you know in the in, in a good way, and then you lose, do you then just say? I mean, it it, it feels to me like I couldn't help but being like, wow, that sucks, you know. <laughs> so. I guess, like, is that true non-attachment where you're really just like, well, okay, you know? The place where non-attachment is an important consideration is, is our grasping, okay? If, if there's a grasping, <coughs> then there's going to be an inevitable uh, letdown when we don't get what we want. It doesn't mean that we can't put ourselves 100% into something, all right? So oftentimes what happens with looking at attachment and non-attachment has to do with the way that we are focused on what's arising. But I don't think the sense of disappointment that you're experiencing doesn't necessarily have to come from, from, from attachment. It can come because you genuinely felt that what you were doing was going to be the best interest to serve people and that you felt uh, disappointed that your vision of what was important didn't happen. Okay, but when when that when that when that stuff burns in us, when we can't move through it, when we get worn out from it, then we need to look at our relationship with it. Yeah, does that help? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um. I guess I get a sense that um, <coughs> when you you are speaking of letting go, that you very much are familiar already with what that means, and um, that gives me. Um, I would like to hear a little bit more about what that experience is. Is there any way you can describe it? So, um, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Let go. 
So we can have an opinion about what we're supposed to do, but it's a totally different thing than the actual doing of it. And the doing of it has a certain kind of feeling to it. It's like that. And you certainly know it when you're not doing it, because it hurts. And so, you know, for many people, suffering is often a gateway to the practice, because it's miserable when we don't. And so, you know, many of us, like I've been in situations where I was fighting with every ounce of fur and fang that I could muster, because I was convinced that I'd be able to get out of something through my willpower. And I tried everything. Everything I could imagine, I couldn't get myself out of it that way. And then I just had to let go into it because there was nothing left I could do to fight it. But I tried everything and every single ounce of will and resistance and fight and fury and drama and, oh my goodness, the whole thing until nothing, it was like there's nowhere to go with this and there's nothing I can do to get out of this. I have got to just let go into it. So sometimes it's really helpful to learn to let go by making it worse, exaggerate the clinging, make it tighter, make it more miserable, <coughs> make it five times more miserable, ten times, can you get up to twenty times more miserable? And then when you really understand what that feels like, <laughs> then the opposite sometimes helps. You know, exaggerating things, making it actually sometimes is a really helpful tool for letting go. You know, sometimes I do that with emotions that I'm having a hard time with, is I exaggerate them, I make them worse, you know. So if I'm sulking, I stick my lip out like I'm two, you know. <laughs> you know, or if I'm angry, I pound, you know, I have a tantrum, you know, so that I allow my body to enact the anger in a kind of completely age-inappropriate way. <laughs> in order that I really get what it feels like and just realize just this is, you know, it's miserable. And then when I get it, then it's like, well, actually, this is not what I want to be doing. <laughs> and then it's easier for me, you know. So drama queen, I've learned to captivate, to, 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 to utilize drama queen for my own advantage. You know, I make it the worst possible thing. And then it's just, it's, it's just simpler just to let it go. It works for me. I mean, everyone needs to find their own strategies. But for me, that one has helped. Yeah. I, I hope I'm not being redundant because you seem to be dancing all around it. But what is the difference between attachment and commitment? Attachment is an identification with an outcome. Commitment is a willingness to stay present with a certain amount of integrity or values to a process. Okay, so if you're, if you're invested in an outcome when you come on a retreat, you have an agenda, all right? You're going to sit 15 hours a day, and at the end of this retreat, you're going to become enlightened. That's the attachment, all right? The commitment is, is that I'm going to come to this retreat and bring my attention as best as I can every single moment to whatever arises and work with it as skillfully as I can. 
That's the commitment to the process. Can you see the difference? Yeah? Does that help answer the question? All right. So in a relationship, I want you to be like this and 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 like this. That's how I want you to be. All right? It's clear. I've got that sorted. A commitment is, is I see you and I recognize that you shift and change like I do. And I'm prepared to meet those shifts and changes with you as I do with myself without demanding that you be any particular way. <coughs> Can you see the difference? Yeah. It sounds like the basic, um, I don't want to say task, but the basic process might be to recognize when you like something and when you don't like it. Then look at the sense of self there. And having done that, I'm only trying to see if I've got the very basics here. feeling that sense of self, then trying to get a fix on what the external situation is so that you can work with it or not. I'm not sure whether you should or whether you just drop everything and just go away from, say, the physical plane into awareness. Okay, so there's a lot in your question. And, and part of that, you know, the basic thing of what you said is, is getting a sense of when you like something and don't like something. That's fundamental to be able to see that. So liking something has with it this kind of grabby kind of energy, and not liking something has get out of here, I don't want to know, get, get, out of here, get out of my space, right? These fundamental things are usually underneath everything. And so when we can look at that, then we can begin to get a handle on how to relate to these basic ways of relating to all the things that arise that trigger that, which is everything. Everything triggers liking and disliking. Okay? And so with liking, then we need to have some kind of equanimous response that has some spaciousness in it. And with disliking, we need to find something that's loving and embracing that allows and honors and accepts. When we have a sense of being able to have balance around our reactivity, then that gives us the capacity to just be with the awareness and then the discernment about what's the right action. So in any situation, you've got the relative level, which is you know, our relationship to who these people are, our responsibilities, and the time and place in which this is happening. And then you've got this other level, which we call absolute. I don't know that that's the right word for it, but we call it that, which is the ability just to know the whole thing as it's arising. So one can be aware of desire. We can be aware of wanting. One can be aware of not wanting. One can be aware of aversion. The awareness will by itself diffuse the energy of those things. But that does not mean that you still don't have a responsibility to your children or to your family or to your parents or to the work in order to be able to follow through skillful action with less attachment to outcome. Yeah? Is it clear? Um, it sounds like there, you've been speaking about commitment. Hmm. It sounds like there's an, uh, maybe a necessity to be aware of your intention 
which we often aren't. That's right. Is that right? That's absolutely right. But you see, again, you know, the more we are aware of our intention, then the easier we are able to unpack the whole um, kind of uh, submarine sandwich that gets created <laughs> when, when, when we've got mixed intentions that are actually involved in things. So the suffering often is a motivation for becoming clear about what our intentions are. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. There was a question in the back here. Yeah. And then I think what I'd like after this, I think I'd like to change something after this question. Hi, great to hear you talk. Um, I'm an AA and I uh, got a little sober time under my belt, but I'm wondering, I'm very bad at meditating and I want to know uh, if uh, that can help with uh, taking away, you know, the temptation to use drugs and alcohol. Okay, so when there's an intention or there's a kind of a hunger to use drugs and alcohol, oftentimes there's, that's coming as a kind of um, universal um, uh, self-medication to deal with a deep-seated sense of something that doesn't feel right underneath all of that. And so um, I was on a pilgrimage. Let me just do a little bit of a side and I'll come back, yeah? I was on a pilgrimage to, in, 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 in Italy. St. Francis has several sanctuaries in this, in this valley. And one of these sanctuaries was set up to help people who had uh, very serious issues with addiction. And the basic premise is that there's actually nothing wrong with any of these people. They don't need, they don't need drugs. They don't need psychiatrists. They don't need social workers. What they need is to understand well, what's underneath all of this that's actually supporting the, the longing to use drugs and alcohol in order to cover it up. And so they had a life of, uh, they worked really hard. They worked in the garden and the farm and they made things. And they supported each other as an incredibly tight-knit community to, to live skillfully and healthily and to be able to start looking what's underneath all of this. So that question of what's underneath all of this, what is this basic sense of dis-ease, of this lack of comfort, of this lack of, of, of feeling okay, which is the thing that drives the addiction response, okay? With meditation, okay, one of the things that happens when one is, is coming clean from substances is that your system is real restless. And so it's actually hard to sit still and focus and so sometimes what's real helpful in a situation like that is to do things like walking meditation or standing meditation rather than require that one sit still, okay? Because the awareness with the movement can bring a gentle sense of inquiry in a way which is sometimes much more skillful than longer periods of sitting meditation. And that inquiry can support that sense of, well, what is happening in me? What is this sense of pressure or this wanting to be okay or the wanting to be part of a group that accepts me? What is it that is actually contributing to this whole um, cycle that moves me into action, which then makes it very difficult to then have any discernment about what's going on? So meditation does help, but one needs to use it skillfully. And certainly having friends who understand what you're going through and have been through the same thing is phenomenally supportive because people don't understand it unless they've been through it. They just don't have a clue. And it doesn't matter how articulate they are, you are. They just don't, they don't know it unless they've walked it themselves. So being around mates who are, who are also in a similar journey and also committed to waking up is really important. 
and being compassionate with yourself in the process because it's not an easy journey. I was talking to a friend. Uh, he came to a talk, and he'd been a couple years sober, and he was just really hard on himself. And I said, you need to cut yourself really wide slack. You know, what's happening now is absolutely what should be happening. You know you're right on track. Don't give yourself a hard time. You know, you need to actually appreciate how well you're doing and, and, and be around other people who can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to stop with the questions now and just spend a couple more minutes talking about this project, if you don't mind, because uh, it might be of interest. Um, where do I begin? So I've been living in England for 20 years and part of a tradition that I absolutely love. And, you know, this life has been something that I've been committed to for a very long time now. And there's a couple things that are really clear. One is, is that being a nun is good. The other is, is that it's absolutely interdependent with the lay community. And the third is, is, is that when you commit your life to doing things, to living a life of non-harm, then it is really important not to do things that you know are harmful. And these are the three fundamental principles that are behind the whole movement of creating a training monastery in California. There's an interest in creating an opportunity where nuns can train and practice. There's an interest in exploring a, um, a collaborative envisioning of what this monastic and lay relationship looks like in a way that supports everyone. And there's an interest in doing it in a way where the things that we know in the mirror of our beings that are harmful, we don't do. It's not that complicated. Yeah. But in order for me to come to California, I don't have a magic wand that I can go whoop, whoop, and just land. It needs support. So part of what I was hoping in coming this time and talking and teaching was to see, well, if there are people who are actually interested, that they can say, yeah, this is good. And what can we do to support? So that's my two and a half minute version. <laughs> And I also thought I would ask if anybody has more questions about what the project is about and what, I've, what, I've, what I'm intending to do. So, yeah? Do you have a question? Yeah. He wants to know how he can let go of his dad, who is also a practicing 
drug addict with a um, mental illness and not taking care of himself right now. So Bodhi wants to know how he can let go of his dad. You know, that is such an important question. And I wish I could spend a whole hour just with you answering and talking to you about that question. Because it's not easy. And there isn't a simple answer to it. But I appreciate your courage in asking the question, because that's certainly where to begin. His dad is bipolar. Mm. This is a lot of suffering for a family. This is a lot of suffering, yeah. Thank you for asking the question, but I don't think that I can begin to touch that right now. I think one thing that you can do is you can look in your heart about that incredible wish <coughs> that the whole thing was different, that it was somehow absolutely different, this deep, deep, deep longing that it was otherwise. And in looking at that and feeling your own sadness in looking at that, then it might be possible that there's a, an, a little space that opens up around the situation. When you do that, you'll need to have a lot of kindness and compassion for yourself. Thank you for asking. There was a question, just, uh, you had your hand up earlier. Do you still have a question? No? Yeah. Thank you. Um, my question is, what is your project about, and how are you going to go about doing it? <laughs> what is my project about? Yes. You invited us to ask you questions about your project and how you're going to go about doing it, and so I'm accepting your invitation. <laughs> <laughs> So I am a Thai forest nun, and I'm coming to this country, and I'm interested in creating a training monastery for nuns, and I'm interested in exploring what this means in a modern world with lay people who are also committed to waking up. And what the model is, or the way the model works, is, is, is that as an alms mendicant, what I, uh, I live on is, is, is the generosity of other people. And I travel and teach, and when people are interested in what I have to say and what I have to offer, they often make invitations for me to come back and teach again. And so the, what I'm uh, interested to see what happens is as I'm back in the California and I'm teaching here how people are uh, responding to me, to what I have to say, to the way I teach, and also to this project. And what I'm hoping is, is that people will say, well, we think this project is a good project and we'd like you to come back and we're happy to help support with the kind of basic things that are needed, which we know nuns need. We, need, we know that they need to eat food regularly. We know that they need to get help getting to teaching engagements. We know that organizations need support with people um, volunteering to help coordinate things and we would like to see this happen. So the project is about... Um, Envisioning a new model and creating a training monastery for nuns. That's the project. 
and how I see about doing that, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> and I hope that through you know, teaching and, and visiting with different people, there'll be interest to help make it happen. Does that answer your question? Yes. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I can't pick out a place because the place is dependent on where the people invite. Yeah? So I'm waiting for the right conditions to come together. The fellow who started the city of 10,000 Buddhas was a, who looked around and found the place and then got, you know, there was already buildings there and they changed it and made it better. And well, he already had quite an established community of people that were supporting him. So once you have a community of people that are supporting you, then you can go look out for a place, yeah? But what I need to do is to come back to California and then let the community um, become a little bit more cohesive. And then from that, then we can go look for a place. My dad said, my dad said, he said before I left, he said, tell them you need 500 acres and $10 million. <laughs> now the truth comes <laughs> And I said, Dad, I said, Dad, you would never make a good nun. He said, you're right. He said, you're right. There's some things you just don't talk about at the first meeting. <laughs> Father's wisdom. Uh, could you just explain what the difference is between a training monastery and just a monastery? OK, good question. All right. so. I've lived in training monasteries and regular monasteries, and training monasteries are geared up to support monastics in their understanding and application of monastic life. So it's, it's specifically focused on helping uh, young monastics learn how to live as a monastic. And a, and a monastery that's not focused on that often has people who are considerably more senior, yeah, um, because they are not needing to do that so quite so much. Yeah. I was just wondering how big the pool of people who are actually even interested in entering monastic life like in this region actually is. It doesn't seem like that's something like in you know Asia or something. I know a lot of people that might be a obvious choice, but here it's. It's not so well, clear you'd to be me. you'd be really surprised. You know, I I was on a teaching uh, um, trip a couple years ago, and in a period of what four weeks, there were ten people that asked me that they to or they wanted to ordain. Really? Yeah, <laughs> you'd be really surprised. I think the the problem is, or the way I one one of the conundrums is, is, is that because some of the um, the Cultural biases that are embedded in the monastic tradition are such that it is um, sufficiently off-putting that people have to choose between, really, they have to make really hard choices. And so I have known a number of incredibly dedicated people who come into the life who are really have a very sincere vocation, but because of the circumstances, they've, they've left. And my sense, my sense is with the contemporary society the way it is, that if there was a monastic model that actually was congruent with people's values, that it's actually something that a lot more people would be interested in coming to. Yeah. 
So are you referring to specifically to women, what women face in trying to be nuns in your tradition and culture? That's right. Yeah, Can you that explain that a little bit? Um, we come from a tradition that comes from Thailand. And in Thailand, and then originally it comes from India. And so in India 2,500 years ago, you know, the women, women did not have, an, have a legal right to exist as independent people. Their existence was, was, was determined by their relationships with their fathers, their husbands, or their sons. And some of these biases, which were uh, 2,500 years ago, have been um, flavors of them, have been passed on through the, throughout the generations in terms of what's considered the norm. So for example, it's considered the norm that, that monks are the ones who are senior, and nuns are the ones who are junior. And, and, and then if certain decisions are made, monks can change those decisions. Yeah. So the kind of things that would have existed in an ancient culture are not um, congruent with value systems that are today. And in my own experience, living with this for many years, the blessings of the tradition so overrode the challenges that it was obvious to me that I was interested in staying with it. But as I became more senior, and I had more leadership roles, then when these things started happening, where a junior monk, somebody who was younger than me, could overturn decisions that I had when I was 10 or 15 years the senior, I was noticing the effect that it had on me, which was is that it was not conducing to letting go. It was conducing <laughs> to solidifying a sense of inadequacy and an inability to actually see things for what they were. And when I was able to see that the conditioning that these cultural biases were engendering was disabling my ability to wake up, then I became clear that it's actually not helpful. It needs to be something that we move out of. Yeah. So one more question. Thank you for your talk. It was lovely, and um, that was a lovely um, address to your motivation for starting this nunnery. I wonder if you'd like to speak to that further. I have a love of the Dhamma, and for 30 years now, I've seen or had this longing or a sense of an aspiration to live my life as a nun, even though it took 10 years before, once I had that aspiration, it came to fruition. I see the blessings of this life. They are indescribable. I could spend a year talking about the blessings of being able to live the life that I've been able to live, and I wouldn't get them to the end of it. So this is my life. And I have also seen, as I was just describing, that there are some cultural biases that are kind of hardwired into the identi identity of the tradition that are no longer um, really su suitable. So my motivation is, is to create an opportunity for people to wake up where they're not having to make such difficult choices, where my aspiration is to create an opportunity where everybody can be uh, supported in their aspiration to wake up. And uh, 
and to see how this unfolds in a contemporary postmodern society. Does that answer your question? Okay, so in a traditional forest monastery, the monastics are the ones who give the talks, and they're the ones who have the spiritual authority, and they're the ones who decide the structure, and they're the ones who um, make any kinds of important decisions. And um, there's a place for that, especially you know when somebody spends 30 years of their life living as a mon monastic, and every year they spend several months a year in, in, in retreat. There's often a depth in their practice, which is not necessarily the same as what can happen in a lay situation, all right? But not necessarily doesn't mean that it doesn't ever happen. And so here we have Spirit Rock, which is a perfect example. It's run by lay teachers. Occasionally there are monastics that come and visit. But the lay teachers are the one that have this place, run this place, guide this place. And it doesn't make any sense to me in this society with the number of um, mature Dhamma teachers and mature Dhamma practitioners that the only voice of wisdom and authority should come from monastics. It doesn't make sense to me because there are too many situations where the lay people have so much to offer that it is a deprivation to everybody to not include that in, in the model. Furthermore, because the stuff that I've been talking about or alluding to, referring to, is something that's been passed on for 2,500 years in the monastic tradition. I don't trust the monastic. I don't even trust myself. I don't trust that we have the capacity to envision a new model. I don't trust it. And so what I think is essential is, is that whatever happens is a collaboratively envisioned <coughs> model that includes lay and monastics, both from their, uh, their life experience and their meditation experience, because I can't see that what needs to happen is going to come any other way. It's certainly not coming out of my head, you know? And so that is my sense, is, is that together there's going to be a new model that not only includes lay people, but for which they are part of the in collaborative envisioning process of this thing emerging. And it, it, the intention is, is that it supports everybody's well-being. I mean, as it already stands, monasteries are phenomenal resources and oases for people. In, in, a, in, a, in a way somewhat like a, a, a retreat center is, but it has many, many, many more capacities to support people because it's a, it's a whole lifestyle. And so uh, I'm just interested to see what happens with that. I don't yet know how to do that, but I just have a sense that that's what's needed. Now, I'd like, does that, is that enough for you? Okay, great. So what I'd like to do is um, hand over to Terry. There's a couple more announcements, and then after she finishes, I'd like to close with a simple mantra chant we can do together. Okay? So for some of you, the, uh, the notion of a day-long or a week-long retreat might begin to seem more attractive. So again, uh, the back of the t uh, table in the back. Um, next Monday night, Stephen Batchelor will be teaching and dinner will be served. So you are uh, welcome to, to come as you did tonight. Uh, it would be a great help if people could assist the volunteers in tonight's cleanup, putting away chairs and cushions, and any assistance you can lend in tidying up the hall. When you leave, please take 
a right turn onto Sir Francis Drake, even if you're intending to go left eventually. Uh, you can take the first left turn and circle back through Woodacre to head over to um, parts uh, east. So upcoming events, um, Sunday, March 21st, Jay Utal and Deborah Chamberlain-Taylor will lead an evening of chanting and meditation. Uh, Sunday, March 28th, Coleman Barks and Jeffrey Gordon will offer a special benefit evening, the Poetry of Silence, in the Upper Retreat Hall from 7 to 10. There are a number of other classes and retreats happening. If you haven't yet picked up a uh, brochure uh, catalog of all the wonderful retreats, please take some time uh, outside before you go this evening. And as always, there is, a, I think there's a Donna basket on the way out. So I think you've all heard the Donna talk, so I don't need to give it tonight. Thank you so much. So I think I'd just like to close with the compassion mantra, Omani Padmi Hum. It's not Theravadan, but it's something that really touches a heart of compassion. And this is one of the things which is absolutely fundamental to our practice. It's fundamental to our life. It's fundamental to our community. And it's fundamental to our earth right now. So I'd like to invite everyone who would like to join in just a, a, a few minutes of the recitation of this mantra and letting your heart touch, be touched by the compassion that is possible in our practice and that we can support each other in each other's practice. <coughs> Oh, Mani Padme Hum, 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 Oh, Mani Padme Oh, Mani Padme Hum, 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 Oh, Mani Padme So thank you very much for your interest and your attention.
may your practice bear the fruit of peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.